0: Is 6 p.m. on uh, March 4th, 2015, and this is the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley, and I'm so glad to be here with you this evening. Uh, we're not in studio like usual, but hey, it's all working out quite well. And I must say, uh, after the catastrophe that PRN experienced a few weeks back, it's great to see and great to hear that the network is back up. And running. We don't have a guest this evening. We're going to be talking about a number of different subjects, and uh, we're going to get right to it right about now. First, uh, let me say rest in peace to Leonard Nimoy, who uh, many of us grew up watching on Star Trek. More on him a little bit later, by the way. Uh, to Minnie Minoso, baseball great, who I uh, remember watching as a kid. Uh, when he played for both the Chicago White Sox and the Cleveland Indians way, way back in the day. Only, first of all, he was the first black ball player, black uh, Latin American ball player to play in the major leagues. He came in a year after Jackie Robinson in 1948. He was first signed. He is the only, actually, there's one other player who has played across five, count them, five decades. It's an amazing feat. It's an amazing accomplishment. And Minnie Minoso was one of those guys, I think they call him the Cuban Comet. Uh, he was just an extraordinary ball player. And uh, he lived to be almost 90 years old. He's one of those guys, much like Satchel Page, people could never really figure out exactly how old he was. He was also the only ball player over the age of 50 to get a hit in a Major League Baseball game. An incredible, incredible legacy left by Minnie Minoso, and also for all of you New York City ball fans, uh, such sadness at the passing, premature passing of Anthony Mason, one of the bedrocks of the New York Knicks teams of the 1990s, some rugged uh, uh, individuals. I think a lot of people felt epitomized what New York City was all about in the 1990s, Charles Oakley, Patrick Ewing, and, of course, Anthony Mason, dead at the age of 48. So, what's been going on in the world? Quite a few things, as it turns out. Some of them, not so cool, I guess, if you want to put it in the vernacular. It's the vernacular I've used for a good part of my life. I, I will say this. Uh, it's Wednesday. This past Sunday marked my daughter's 18th birthday. And uh, it was an enjoyable time. It was had by all. A happy birthday to my daughter, Vivica who's finally decided what college she's going to. Which one is it? I ain't telling you. Not that I have a problem with you, but I'm just not telling That's her private decision. And uh, she shared it with us and a few other people. Not that many, though. Anyway, we have top stories. We have a lead story. And, of course, we have one story that we call To the Ridiculous. And we'll talk about that at the end of the broadcast. In Congress... Benjamin Netanyahu, BB goes to Washington, the Israeli prime minister, addressing Congress, I believe it was for something on the order of 46 minutes. He's either 43 or 46 minutes yesterday. Um, essentially, bad mouthing the possibility of a, a deal between the United States and Iran on Iran's nuclear program. Now, let me say right at the outset I am a supporter of the state of Israel's absolute right to exist within its borders and secure within its borders. That being said, I believe that Bibi Netanyahu's move is going to end up backfiring on him. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But I think it was at best stupid uh, for him to come and address the United States Congress at the request of Republicans, who, by the way, don't have all that many people in their districts that elected them based on their positions on Israel. You go to these southern states; these people are not that into, and nor do they follow uh, Middle East relations. As long as the United States is not getting involved in another war, an awful lot of people, I would suggest, don't even know who leads Iran. But it doesn't matter because Bibi Netanyahu had a point to make. And that point was to, one, backslap Barack Obama. Let's be real clear about that. That was part of BB Netanyahu's agenda. But the other is to decry <clears throat> a, uh, a deal-making process without actually having to come up with anything to take its place. Netanyahu didn't come here and say, well, okay, the United States deal is bad, and here's a better one that we, the Israelis, have put together. That's not what he did. And there's a reason why that's not what he did. Because Netanyahu has no interest in making a deal with the Iranians for whatever sets of reasons. And and part of it may be because he's playing to folks back in Israel. Part of it is because he knows now, because he's an astute guy, that. The United States political establishment has a solid block of conservative Republicans who, for their own reasons, are willing to entertain him and invite him to come to Congress and give him umpteen standing ovation. That's cool. But watch what happens here. Now, it may well be that President Obama's ability to sell this Iranian nuke deal will be impacted by Netanyahu's words. However... I believe, and it's just my own belief as far as the political fallout in this country, that there are going to be a lot of people who are not going to be all that pleased at this Congress seemingly selling out to a foreign nation because they really dislike this president. And I mean, I hate to be that harsh about it, but that's what some of these people in Congress are doing. Imagine, imagine Barack Obama inviting another world leader to come here and essentially try to talk the United States out of doing something that the United States was actively engaged in doing. Believe me when I tell you, there'd be people raising pure D-hades. And by the way, uh, you know, the the people raising all kinds of Hades about uh, Hillary Clinton's emails, but we'll get to that a little bit later on as well. Here's the deal Benjamin Netanyahu is not necessarily going to accomplish the end he seeks in coming here and speaking to Congress. That's just my feeling about this. Remember this Netanyahu's been whining about Iranian nukes since 1992. Since 1992, he's been telling Americans that. The Iranians are a couple days away from uh, having a nuclear bomb. And here we are, what, 23 years later? And I don't think they have one just yet. Now, that's not to say that the United States should be soft on Iran or make a bad negotiating deal with the Iranians on their nuclear program. That's, That's not what I'm saying at all. I don't know about anybody else, but that's not what I'm saying at all. You can be tough say consider the negotiation are tough under any circumstance, whether it be unions and management or whatever. Be tough, but don't come here and say, don't do anything. Or I guess, and, and he didn't say this, but I have to question whether or not this was an inference here. Well, let us handle it. We'll take care of it. And see, that's another thing that creates a problem at least a problem for some people in America. And that is the Israelis, who have never publicly acknowledged that they have nuclear weapons, but most people know they have at least 200 of them, are coming here and telling us how to deal with a nation that doesn't have any yet. And they've got 200. And you get a sense sometimes that maybe they would end up using those 200. I'm doing this in my house, so the phone's on no. in the background. But, uh, <clears throat> no, yeah, this is PRN. You've got to be honest about these things. But, anyway, uh, I, I'm just not, first of all, I am not convinced that there is a substantial movement in America that backs Netanyahu's play here. In the Congress? Absolutely. Do they represent the people of the United States? Absolutely. People elected these guys and women. But the bottom line is, I think their public, when they go home, going, there are some people in their public, even some of the more conservative elements in their public, are going to look at them and say, what did you just do? You just essentially said, okay, Bibi Netanyahu, we'll follow your lead in how to deal with this. Now, you know, if, if the Israelis want a new, first of all, The Iranians, even if they had a bomb, wouldn't nuke the Israelis. Much trash as they talk, whether they send out threats on Twitter, I don't care. There's no way on God's green earth that the Iranians would end up nuking the Israelis, if they had a bomb, which they don't, all right, because the the nuclear cloud that would blanket the Middle East would drive their neighbors up a wall. And the Iranians would be pariahs, which they don't want to be. They want to extend their influence. According to Netanyahu, they're already controlling Damascus and this one and that one and all these other places. Maybe they are. I don't know. Maybe they are. But I do know that the ability to address Congress, okay, foreign dignitaries invited to speak to Congress, people like Nelson Mandela, Black of and others, Bibi Netanyahu can't, couldn't tie Nelson Mandela's shoes if he had a stepladder. There's no way. He was here on a partisan political mission, invited by people with a partisan political agenda. And these folks are, are you know, <clears throat> I don't want to ascribe the worst elements in this country. Uh... You know, but but there's a woman that hosts a talk show, God knows where and God knows why, who I actually heard saying that the people who decided to boycott Netanyahu's speech yesterday should be hung. Hung, ladies and gentlemen. And part of that, by the way, had to deal with the fact that she thought most of them were from the Congressional Black Caucus. Now, that's pure insanity. I don't know what network she broadcasts on, I don't know where she's from. I don't even remember her name, and thank God for that. But that's the fanaticism that is the outer fringe of all this. You see, the Obama is a Muslim thing, which, by the way, hasn't died. It's died down, but trust me, it has not died. So uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, I, I assume the door uh, didn't hit you on your way out And uh, bye-bye. Be seeing you. Could you imagine if Obama said he wanted to address the Knesset about an issue that they were dealing with? Think Netanyahu would be down with that? We might No, I don't think we will ever see that. Not during Barack Obama's presidency. Maybe further down the road. But not during Barack Obama's presidency. Moving right along, Obamacare goes back to the Supreme Court. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it happened once and now it's happening twice. The arguments, oral arguments, were heard today in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, The name of the case, King versus Burwell, which will decide the fate of the ACA. Obamacare legislation passed now almost five years ago. Um, In a nutshell, Here's what they're going after this time. And by the way, this may not be the last time the Supreme Court ends up having to rule on some of this stuff, okay? Uh, According to um, the New York Times, two notable uh, personages in the New York Times, Emily Bazelon, who is a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, and Adam Liptak, who is the Supreme Court correspondent, went back and forth about this in the pages of the Times. According to Ms. Bazelon, After the Affordable Care Act was passed into law in 2010, 34 states opted for federally run exchanges instead of setting up their own. They did this for a variety of reasons, cost, flexibility, political opposition to the law. More than 9 million people in in these states now receive subsidies to the tune of about $3,000 per person, according to a study by the Urban Institute. If the plaintiffs prevail. The federal government will not be able to provide subsidies to anyone buying health insurance through a federally run exchange. Many of those nine million people would presumably pull out of the exchanges, driving up prices for whomever is left, and the exchanges would collapse. That's what's at stake. The challengers in this case say that four words in the Affordable Care Act's hundreds of pages, quote, established by the state, means that subsidies are available only through state-established exchanges. In other words, those four words mean what they say. Well, there's a, 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 a number of ways you might interpret this. But, you know, people have been saying in the years, and I do say years since the Affordable Care Act was passed, that once it was in full effect, once people actually started seeing its benefit, that there would be uh, quite a bit more opposition to gutting it than one might think back in 2010, 2011, when everybody was, you know, repeal it, repeal it. Uh, So, and and this, by the way, lets the Congress off the hook because, you know, Uh, John Boehner and his uh, cronies in the House, I don't know how many, what is it, 40-some-odd times they voted to repeal it or repeal parts of it or do something to it or radically alter it or eviscerate it or whatever it is they want to do? And none of them have worked. None of them them have have actually got passed into law. Uh, Of course, the president would be standing ready to veto any such nonsense. So now people are looking for the Supreme Court to do what it didn't do, by the way, a couple of years ago when they voted on this. Oh, God. You know, you would think, and, and I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to necessarily talk bad about uh, the Supreme Court. Because, you know, the, the Supreme Court has done some yeoman work over the years. Now, I'm not a big fan of Citizens United, but I am a big fan of Brown versus Board of Education as one example. Um... So, you know, it, it, there's a yin and a yang to the Supreme Court. But uh, there are times when you wish the court would just say, okay, that's it. We rule on this. We're done with it. It's the law of the land. Don't bother us anymore. Don't come with forward nitpicking like you've done up until now. I, and, and, you know, they're not going to do it. They're going to rule on this. It may, and I... I I'm frightened to even think about this. But it could come down to a five to four, I guess what you might say, party-line vote. With Anthony Kennedy, the usual swing voter, voting with the majority on this. With, with with the rest of Thomas, Scalia, Roberts. Let me see. Thomas, Scalia, Roberts. And who's the other one? There's one other one. Um, it would be a shame. It would be a shame if the Affordable Care Act was gutted in this way. But it certainly can happen. It certainly can happen. Um, you know, uh, the, the states are at the root of all this. I mean, it's King versus Burwell. But this is a state thing. The state legislatures who hate Obama as much as anybody else does, you know, they want to kill it. It was... It was the state legislatures and some of those more conservative Tea Party people that tagged it as Obamacare in the first place. So we shall see what the Supreme Court shall do. Now, I don't want everybody to think that there's nothing but bad news. Look, you look outside, the weather's been awful, except for today it got up into the mid-40s. But it's going to, you know, we're going to get more snow. It may have started already. It's dark outside, but... We're going to get more snow. It's going to be cold again until next week. And hopefully spring will come sometime before the next millennium. But there is some good news. Uh, be it inexplicable or not, the fighting over funding DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, which, by the way, is not my favorite agency of government. Um, I mean, I understand they're here to keep, keep us safe and all that. But some of the stuff they do, uh, well, we'll leave that for another day. They were fighting over funding DHS. I'm sure most of you know this. Um, There were reports at the end of last week that the the hourglass had run out and that at least partially DHS would be unfunded, defunded, however you want to put it. Then they came up with a one-week extension, which I thought was the most ridiculous thing in politics. A one-week extension of an agency that supposedly charged with keeping America safe. But they, for whatever sets of reasons, John Boehner, who, by the way, crafted a lot of this stuff at the behest of his right-wing cronies in the House of Representatives. I mean real right-wing cronies in the House of Representatives. Because what they wanted to do was fund DHS and at the same time defund President Obama's executive orders regarding immigration. You see that the immigration thing keeps coming up and up and up. When Loretta Lynch uh, was, was in her confirmation hearings to become the next Attorney General, what did they bring up? Immigration. And, you know, the, so what, one of the things that bothers me about all of this political stuff on a national level is that it's so, it's so lacking in creativity. I mean if you you know start from the all right, I'm, I'm and I'm not talking about myself now, but let's start from the notion that somebody's a conservative, okay um, it would seem to me that you could find more creative ways to go about your business than threatening to defund an agency charged with your safety and the safety of three hundred some odd million people in this country because you're mad about an immigration policy. And, you know, you could, you could kind of sort of say, you know, the same sort of thing might be said about inviting Netanyahu to speak before Congress, but we've already covered that one, okay? There's a point at which you have to start start saying, like, this is not the way governance is supposed to work. I know they want to crack Obama's legs in the last two years of his presidency, I get that, but at the rate they're going, they're never going to do it. And I'm not saying, I'm not rooting for them to do it. Don't get me wrong. I may disagree with this president about a lot of stuff, but the last thing I'd want to see is Republicans, you know, actually grabbing his his, his Achilles muscles or something and, and pulling him apart. Well, never mind. I'll, I'll leave that allegory alone for now. As it turns out, um the final bill passed 257 to 167 with only 75 Republican supporters but it was interesting that John Boehner does not seem to be imperiled in his role as Speaker because of his vote now the President's going to sign this bad boy he ain't stupid he's going to sign this um But Republicans caved on this. There's no other way you can say that. Here's one thing that John Fleming, Congressman John Fleming, Republican of Louisiana, quote, how did we end up with kind of a slow demise, you mean, even after a very hefty kind of rhetoric? Well, apparently, that's the way it's done around here. I don't agree with it. Uh, You know what? That is the way things are done around there. If you don't like it, change it. But don't just change it for the sake of changing it. Change it to make it better. That would be like, you know, creating legislation, passing legislation, trying to do something to make the nation better. And by the way, when I say that, I'm not saying, you know, give give billions of dollars of government handouts to this one and that one and the other one, blah, 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 blah. No. Because in too many cases, that money gets chunked, that money doesn't go where it's supposed to go, and it doesn't help the people it's supposed to help. Because if it did, those folks would be in better shape than they are. So that's not, you don't throw money at some of these problems. But I wonder, see, the other part of this, as far as Homeland Security, I got to figure John Boehner wants something from Obama in exchange for this. I got to say, you know, as this guy just that's the way things are done around here. So what is it that, that he wants? And what, what is what progressive agenda item is Obama willing to throw under the bus in exchange for this? Because it's coming. I'm telling you now, maybe you haven't heard this from anybody else, but you know what? It's coming. Something we want is coming. Something we want, when I say it's coming, it's not going to happen because the president owes Boehner and them for this. Mark my words. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying this to say I've been around for a relatively long period of time. You know, I went to the gym today and I started feeling those aches and pains in my bones. She's not a kid anymore, are you? Well, In the words of the great Sekou Sundiata, if you don't know who he is, look him up. I don't know much, but I've seen a few. And that's the way politics is done. So get ready, y'all, because something's going to happen. You're going to want something, and you're not going to get it. And that will be the reason why. So, geez, you know, I've been bloviating for almost a half hour. (laughs) This is amazing. This is the Mark Riley Show. This is the Progressive Radio Network, and I'm, you know, hey, Jason, you know, I could get used to this. (laughs) No, I'm only kidding. I like to come into the studio. There's going to be a studio set up uh, very, very soon. Uh, I I just enjoy this. Uh, People don't know how much I enjoy talking about issues. You know, uh, the other day I got into a discussion about homosexuality with a very diverse group of people, including a Jewish rabbi. And half of us believed that you were born with it. That would be me. And the other half said it was a, uh, you know, a learned behavior. And I mean, it, it, it was not contentious. It was intense. It was passionate. It wasn't contentious. And you know, people took principal positions and cited research on both sides. <laughs> Amazing! Amazing. So, I mean, this is, I guess, in my dotage, what I am destined to do. So we should go now next to Oklahoma. Is that where Inhofe is from? I believe that is where Inhofe is from. Mr. Snowball. Guy brings a snowball to the Senate and says, well, this is proof. Global warming doesn't exist. Oh, my God. Anyway, Oklahoma has decided Bring back the ga- essentially the gas chamber. Now you remember that that you know the most prominent state in this country that used to have the gas chamber was the state of California. They were the ones that you know. You, <clears throat> excuse me. You see any of the uh, detective or crime stories from the '60s on TV? Uh, Perry Mason and all the rest of them. And, you know, they would always talk about the gas chamber, just like, you know, if it was a New York-based thing, they'd talk about the chair. Well, California got rid of the gas chamber some years ago. I'm not sure exactly what year, but they use lethal injection like most of the rest of the country. But Oklahoma would now become the first state to allow the execution of inmates using nitrogen gas. This was a bill that was approved 85 to 10 yesterday by the state House of Representatives was put forth by a representative named Mike Christian, no pun intended, a Republican, uh, no surprise there, who began studying alternative methods after a botched lethal injection in the spring led the United States Supreme Court to consider the constitutionality, that is, of Oklahoma's current three-drug method. He said numerous studies have been conducted on nitrogen hypoxia, which is similar to what pilots at high altitudes can encounter when oxygen supplies diminish. Doesn't that mean you kind of sort of suffocate or something? I don't know. He described the method as humane, painless, and easy to administer, which is the most important part. Uh, It goes to the Senate next. Lethal injection would remain under this bill the first method of execution, but nitrogen gas would become the second alternative if injection was declared unconstitutional, unconstitutional, or if the drugs became unavailable. Now, understand why I'm bringing this story to you all, party people. Here's a state. And, and I mean, it's not like this was a close vote. It was 85 to 10. They got to come up with a plan B for state-sanctioned homicide. If they find that the three-drug method that caused some guy to you know, squirm for 20 minutes on the gurney before he finally died, Uh, If that doesn't work or if the court finds it unconstitutional, they got to have a plan B. It would never dawn on them say, you know what, maybe we need to rethink this capital punishment thing, maybe start doing life without parole. I mean, you know, you you watch some of these reality crime shows and some of these, I mean, these are some evil people, some of them, and they get like three consecutive lifetimes plus 50 million years. And, you know, they'll be eligible for parole. Never. I got no problem with that. I have a problem with state-sanctioned homicide. And I have a particular problem with a plan B for state-sanctioned homicide. I mean, come on. You ain't got nothing else to do in Oklahoma other than figure out new and improved ways. And by the way, they said they wouldn't even have to build a gas chamber. The nitrogen could be administered inside a tent or through a secure mask worn by the... How are you going to have a secure... You're going to put a secure mask over an inmate's face and then pump nitrogen gas in them? And that's a humane way to administer capital? I'm not sure there is a humane way. I mean, I know I have friends, good friends, who uh, would disagree with me on this, but I... Nah, sorry, no can do. No can not no can do, no can support. Now it's 631. We got a bunch of other stories, plus our lead story. So uh Jason, if we can take a very, very quick break, I'm gonna come back with the no news, bad news coming out of Ferguson, Missouri, which is our lead story here on the Mark Riley Show. This is the Progressive Radio Network. Back in a flash. hour of 7 o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show on the Progressive Radio Network. Lord, 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 after a couple of weeks out, I am glad, glad, glad to be back. Our lead story, actually it's two stories this evening, both involving the Justice Department, both involving the city of Ferguson, Missouri. Um, to no one's surprise, the Justice Department came out with a report that says that the police in Ferguson routinely—I want to emphasize that—routinely violate the rights of blacks. Uh, you know, on a level that is like ugly beyond belief. Uh, there were—I I, I saw one website a little while ago that uh, talked about some of the things that the some of the out-and-out out racist things racist jokes that Ferguson officials made, and I I think I'm going to run this by, y'all, before I get to my main point with this story, because the main point is so ugly, there ought to be some kind of a federal takeover. Okay, here are seven emails that the Justice Department uncovered, all of which come from current employees and were apparently sent during work hours. Y'all worried about Hillary Clinton's emails and whether they went out on a public or private? All right, here we go. A November 2008 email said President Barack Obama won't be president for long because what black man holds a steady job for four years? A March 2010 email mocked African Americans with horrible stereotypes about their families and how they speak. One line of the email read, quote, I'd be so glad that this be my last child support payment. Month after month, year after year, all those payments, unquote. An April 2011 email depicted President Barack Obama as a chimpanzee. Well, that's not the first time. A May 2011 email said, quote, an African-American woman in New Orleans was admitted into the hospital for a pregnancy termination. Two weeks later, she received a check for $5,000. She phoned the hospital to ask who it was from. The hospital said, Crime Stoppers. A June 2011 email said a man wanted to obtain welfare for his dogs because they were mixed in color, unemployed, lazy, can't speak English, and have no friggin' clue who their daddies are, unquote. An October 2011 email had a photo of a bare-chested group of dancing women apparently in Africa with the caption, Michelle Obama's high school reunion. A December 2011 email made jokes based off offensive stereotypes about Muslims. Now, these are people, since they're employees of Ferguson, Missouri, these are people who the black folks in Ferguson, who, by the way, are two-thirds of the population, they are paying these people to do this during their work hours. Now, the last one they have here is, is in 2011, but there's seven of them from 2008 to 2011. You think they've actually stopped? You think somebody woke up one day, whoa, wait a minute, we gotta cut this out. But that's not the ugliest part of this, okay? Because this is a six month investigation that the Justice Department did after Michael Brown. And I mean it, it, the the actual numbers are ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous in terms of stops, in terms of all of this stuff. As a matter of fact, the report says racial bias is so ingrained that Ferguson officials, well, that's racial jokes. And by the way, no one was ever, ever disciplined for that stuff. Ever disciplined for that stuff. Minor, largely discretionary offenses such as disturbing the peace and jaywalking were brought almost exclusively against Blacks. When whites were charged with these crimes, they were 68% more likely to have their cases dismissed. Now, this, and by the way, this is not an original idea. But more, I saw somebody on TV talked about it. It might have been Jeffrey Toobin. Somebody. What this means, between emails and all of these petty stops and fines and the rest, because they fine people for this stuff, what it means is the black citizens of Ferguson, Missouri, were paying for their own oppression. Paying for their own oppression. Fines, this, that. And what it did was manage to keep certain taxes down, which I guess people might say, well, you know, two-thirds of the population is black. I guess they benefited from that. But you see, When you have a racist system of justice and you have that racist system of justice funded in any way, shape, or form by its victims, you have an un-American, unconstitutional, unconscionable abuse of power on the part of the government. Because of course it's the government that benefits from all these fines. They, got to, they get that amount of money, they ain't got to spend extra money. They can use this money to pave roads, or do this, or do that, or do the other. Black people paying for their own oppression. Paying, for example, for the salaries of the cops. Paying for the salaries of the city employees that talk about Michelle Obama's high school reunion. Paying for all of that. I mean, that's worse than plantation politics in 2015. It's ridiculous. Now, I don't know what's going to be done about this. I really don't. Uh, Being the person I am, I'm not really sure, short of a lawsuit that will cost the city of Ferguson a boatload of money, I'm not sure there's much that can be done. See, because when it's that ingrained, then you realize that the shooting of Michael Brown was just another day at the office. And that all of that talk from the police chief about, oh, it wasn't this, we're going to clean up this. It's all crap. All crap. Now, I said there was no news because that's really no news. What people ought to start asking themselves is how many other places in America with majority? I'm not talking about big cities now. I'm not talking about the cities with large black people, small towns, the, 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 the Mississippi Delta, other places, Tennessee, North Carolina. How many other places with substantial black populations are run the same way that Ferguson, Missouri is run? And what needs to be done to stop it? have to ask ourselves that question. It's an important question to be asked. Now, the bad news is that Darren Wilson, the cop who did shoot and kill Michael Brown, is now off the hook completely. Justice Department cleared him. the uh, decision was announced today, on the same day they released the stuff about the racism of the Ferguson Police Department. Now, if that's not irony, I don't know what is. Now, again, I don't think Eric Holder has been a particularly bad attorney general. But to release one report that says there's been a pattern and practice of racism, racism, in the police department, and then say, we can't prosecute the person who exemplifies, who is the poster child for that kind of racism. That's just not acceptable. Now, apparently, federal agents and civil rights prosecutors rejected the story that Michael Brown had his hands in here and said, hands up, don't shoot. The Justice Department said forensic evidence and other witnesses backed up the account of Officer Wilson, who said Mr. Brown fought with him, reached for his gun, then charged at him. He told investigators that he feared for his life. Now, to me, this is about as counterintuitive as it gets. What would drive, short of complete insanity or a death wish, What would drive an 18-year-old kid to go mano a mano with a cop who's got a gun? All right? And if he reached for it and failed, my first move, if I was an 18-year-old kid or a 63-year-old man, which I am, is to back up and say, yo, (laughs) okay, you won. There's just something about this that is extremely troubling. And, and, you know, I I, I don't like to use terms like extremely drunk because it sounds so academic, you know. And in my heart of hearts, I'm not an academician. I'm not. I may talk like one every now and then, but I'm not. See, because there are people, like my man Les Payne, for example, who, when he reads stuff like this, you can see the anger, you can see the rage welling up in people I so, say you know what this 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 isn't justice it may have come from the Justice Department but this is not justice and by the way um, you know the 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 report about find not finding any reason to charge Darren Wilson is full of the same kind of stuff that you that I've been seeing in explanations for not prosecuting cops who kill unarmed black people, going back almost four decades. Well, the witness accounts don't jive with the forensic evidence. Well, the witness accounts uh, are varying. Or or they said one thing here and they said something else. This has been going on forever. And some people might say, well, you know, you can't ignore that sort of thing. But it seems like there is never a preponderance of evidence in these cases, whether they be on a state level or a federal level. Never a preponderance of evidence. I shouldn't say never. Rarely a preponderance of evidence that would lead somebody to say, you know, we got to bring charges on this chunk. We, just, we, we don't hear that. And, you know, they, they, you know, it is a civil rights violation case. The law requires prosecutors to prove that Officer Wilson willfully violated Mr. Brown's civil rights when he shot him. Courts have given officers wide latitude when deciding when to use deadly force if they feel their lives are in danger. Okay, that, all right, take that at face value. How come so many of the unarmed people that get killed in this country are black people? If officers have all this discretion, how come they don't use it when it comes to black life? those are the questions that people legitimately are asking here. And particularly young people. You know, you figure Les Payne's older than me. If If this makes him mad, you can imagine how young people feel. Because it's a matter of people saying to themselves, you know what? There is no justice for certain people in this country. You know what? There's just no way that people can expect to be treated equally under the law if the color of their skin is dark. That's what this says to people. And it is the most dangerous thing that America faces. And when some people are confronted with this, their first reaction is to say, oh, no, 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 no. No, you're, you're playing the race card. I don't know who invented that saying, but I'd like to smack him. You're playing the race No, you're not playing the race card. Look at the stinking racket. And then tell me you're playing the race card. But this is just another. And again, you know, all right. Kudos to the Justice Department for saying that the Ferguson Police Department routinely violates people's rights. Wonderful. If if that, if that gets black people in other towns and cities across this country thinking, fine, that's a good thing. This Darren Wilson thing, it's it's tough to stomach. It's tough to swallow. Now, if you want to talk about something that's tough to swallow, okay, let, let, let's go to another story here. This is a local one. You know, there used to be a, a, a TGI Fridays on 34th Street, um, right off of 8th Avenue. And uh, I think we had been in there once or twice. Anyway, they decided to move that TGI Fridays further east, down 34th Street, maybe even into the next block. Well, 10 African-American workers who were previously employed at the Fridays on in its original location... Are suing the restaurant for racial discrimination, saying they were told they would be rehired after their location shut down and a new one opened nearby, but only white and Latino employees were brought over. The non black managers at the restaurant located near Madison Square Garden allegedly said they wanted to avoid the old location being a quote, ghetto store, unquote. The hell does that mean? First of all, you're a block from the garden. How is that ghetto? Now I can remember because I used to work over there. I remember when it was when it wasn't TGI Fridays that was a ghetto store. It was it was just that that particular intersection, that particular area was street. It was straight up street, Thirty Fourth Street and Eighth Avenue was street. You know, people hanging out here, hanging out there. This is a long time ago a Chinese restaurant, that was, this is going back to the early 1970s, way before TGI Fridays ever thought about moving to 34th Street, not to that location. In December, they closed that one, reopened with the same management less than a block away. While the black employees said they were encouraged to reapply for their jobs, and by the way, this is coming from Think Progress, they were assured they'd be rehired. None of them got their jobs back. Two thirds of the servers and most of the cooks at the old location were black. But none were rehired and got no response told. All the positions were filled when they followed up about their applications, even though open positions were posted on Craigslist. Most of the employees who were hired at the new restaurant were allegedly Hispanic or light-skinned. The lawsuit claims just one black server was brought over who was light-skinned. They also had little or no industry experience. The manager of the new location also allegedly said he prefers to hire Hispanics because they, quote, work harder, unquote. TGI Fridays didn't respond to a request for comment. Now, here's the deal. If there's any substance to these allegations, then black folks are, to an extent, because black folks go to TGI Fridays, Black folks are paying for their own oppression again. Same thing. It's no different from Ferguson. You know, they, they, we don't want it to be too ghetto, man. So you can't get the lights getting guided over here. This happens. And by the way, it happens in the restaurant and hospitality industry a lot, a lot more than most people. Between the wage theft and this kind of crap, it happens a lot more than most people are willing to admit. And I mean, most people are willing to admit. And I don't know whether TGI Friday is going to fight this, settle it, rehire these black people. I'm sure they don't want to do that. Uh, But, you know, they got to do something. Because, you know, some of these people have been working at this place for like 14 years. Plainish, by the way, is seeking $5 million in damages. And a couple of them, they just want a job offer, for God's sake. Restaurant industry. People who come are less likely to get a job offer at a restaurant, and when they are hired, they earn less than their white counterparts and are relegated to, quote, back-of-the-house positions, such as prep cooks and dishwashers, and low-pay ones, such as bussers and runners. This is the name of the game. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the name of the game. Um, still got a couple of more stories left for you. Uh, and there's some interesting ones. Now, here's one. Some of you may be aware of the fact that some states in America had begun drug testing applicants for welfare. Well, you know these people, you know, from the ghetto, poor people. So we have to drug test them. Make sure they're not going to go out and take their checks, and the next thing you know, they're going to go shoot up somewhere. Well, ladies and gentlemen, they've been doing this for a minute now. Uh, And it's interesting, seven states have active drug testing for welfare recipients. But according to state data gathered by St. Progress, again, our good friends over there, the seven states with existing programs, Arizona, Kansas, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, geez, that's three times I mentioned Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Utah, are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to ferret out very few drug users. The statistics show that applicants actually test positive at a lower rate than the drug use of the general population. The national drug use rate is 9.4%. In these states, these seven states, the rate of positive drug tests to total welfare applicants ranges from 0.002% to 8.3%, which last I checked is 1.1% below the national average, and all but one have a rate below 1%. That would seem to indicate I mean, to my untested eyes, the drug testing welfare recipients don't really work all that well. But of course, it's one of those really great political things. That's the thing. These state legislatures, God help them, they believe that that's the kind of thing that the constituents want to believe about welfare recipients. See, that's the thing. They want to be able to believe, and they say, like for example, Oklahoma, which passed a law in 2012 requiring a, requiring a screening of all applicants and chemical tests for those for whom there is a quote reasonable cause to believe they are using illegal substances. Three thousand three hundred forty-two applicants were screened; two thousand nine hundred ninety-two selected for further testing; two hundred ninety-seven tested positive. So. When you figure that the state paid $185,000 for this program and you see the numbers, ain't great. Now, you know, nobody wants to uh, encourage drug use by anybody. But the ugliness inherent in trying to say that welfare, people who are looking for welfare, whether they be black, white, or sky blue, green, Or poor people got nothing better to do with their time than shoot up or get high or go out and find some ecstasy or molly or weed or whatever. It plays to the lowest, basest stereotypes of the constituents of the legislators that passed this crap in the first place. And they don't care how much it costs. They don't care. Because politically, it's money in the bank. (laughs) It really is. It is a daggone shame. It is, in fact, money in the bank. So, <clears throat> excuse me, a couple other things before we go. <clears throat> One, the NYPD, you remember them, are good friends from the New York City Police Department. They've issued new stop and frisk rules that ban stops based on race. W- w- wait a minute. I thought they already did ban stops based on race. They had to do new guidelines for that. These were distributed citywide during a five-page finest message that was released day before yesterday, sparked by the ruling from federal judge Shira Shindlin that the NYPD stop and first tactics violated the civil rights of minority. You know, this is a common thread that's going through all the stuff we're talking about today. Uh, cops are barred. Let's see. Um, cops cannot stop and frisk. Press- People for merely making furtive movements, such as reaching for their waistband or acting nervous—that that one's a good one, acting nervous—or for being in a high, high crime area, which apparently all of those reasons were allowed in the past. Um, they're also barred for stopping people because of race, or if a person matches a generalized description of a crime suspect, such as an eighteen to twenty-five-year-old black male. Stopping frisks must be based on more than a suspicion or a hunch. They're going to have to prove why they conducted the stop and be able to articulate facts, establishing a minimal level of objective justification for making the stop. Now, here's the problem. Uh, I just saw some numbers that said that shootings and murders are up like 20% during the first part of this year. You know what that means. As a matter of fact, I'm surprised. Maybe the papers have already started coming out with stuff like, oh, my God, the city's going back to the bad old days. Well, that's what they do. The media leads the charge, and then they say that, hey, you know what? We can't, we can't allow this to happen. Can't allow it. Now, before we go to the ridiculous, some of you may have heard about the Westboro Baptist Church, right? Those are those homophobic zipper heads that protest at various events, funerals of soldiers, that sort of thing. Well, they were going to, they threatened to picket Leonard Nimoy's funeral. Problem was, I guess their coordinates weren't right because they couldn't beam down to the right spot. Uh, They launched an intense Twitter campaign um, that promised that they'd be there to let everyone know that Nimoy was burning in hell for being famous, not being a member of the Westboro Baptist Church, and for having gay friends like George Takai and Zachary Quinto. But apparently, the funeral was private. Location was never made public. So they actually had no place to go. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine these people? Um, I don't know. Is is Mr. Westboro still around? Who knows? Time for me to go. My thanks to Jason Tobinfeld, all the folks back at uh, Starship PRN. We'll be back to do this all over again. And thank you all so much for listening back to do it all again. Six o'clock tomorrow or not tomorrow, six o'clock next Wednesday evening. This is the Mark Riley show. I'm Mark Riley. Have yourselves a great evening and a better week ahead.